HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. This week, the show highlights two individuals who have received one of the most coveted awards in the culinary world, the James Beard Foundation Award. Damar Brown is the chef de cuisine at Virtu, a restaurant on Chicago's South Side. A former contestant on Top Chef, Damar Brown earned the 2023 Emerging Chef Award from the James Beard Foundation. Damar will join me later in the program. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. But right now, I want to welcome another James Beard Award recipient who calls the Midwest home. Marissa Gencarelli moved from Mexico to Kansas City 18 years ago and decided to bring a taste of her home country to her new hometown by making tortillas. Now, Yoli Tortilleria has been named the 2023 Outstanding Bakery by the James Beard Foundation. Marissa, we are excited to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you uh, started this tortilleria, um, but you're, you're based in Kansas City, but Kansas City is not your birthplace. So tell us how you got to the Midwest and ultimately how you decided to start this business. Yeah, I mean, yes, uh, I'm from Sonora, Mexico. So for those who are not familiar with the geography of that, that's uh, south of the border from Arizona. Uh, my hometown is called Ciudad Obregón, which is really right by the Gulf of California inland. And uh, so we have one side, beautiful ocean, and the other side, we have the Copper Mountains. So it's a beautiful, beautiful place to grow up. Very. It idyllic. sounds gorgeous. Yes, it's absolutely stunning. Uh my hometown in particular is a valley, um, so grows lots of different things. Uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. And then, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, the reason that I ended up in the States, uh, it was more that my parents had passed mm. uh, when I was 20 and 21. So I lost both of them within a two-year span. Oh, goodness. And, um, you know, and I, I was just trying to figure out what to do, and uh, my mom 
thankfully had left me at home in Tucson. That's where my mom's family is from, Arizona, Arizona and California area. And I decided to just take a leap of faith and just start all over in Arizona. How did you make the journey from from Tucson to Kansas City? Yeah, so I th- that's where I'm next. So I ended up studying abroad in Italy, and I met my future husband and also Yoli co-founder. Um, and out there, and he's come from Kansas City, and so that's kind of how I ended up in here. You know, it's just graduated from college and then trying to figure out what to do. And we decided to get hitched <laughs> and we moved to Kansas City. That's fantastic. I mean, you've had, you know, quite a, a bit of uh, different life experiences. And, you know, it sounds like at least thus far in the story that, you know, a, a culinary background isn't necessarily, you know, your uh, your main, uh, how do I want to say, uh, you know, uh, career focus, at least up to this point. So absolutely not. <laughs> at what point, because I, I think, you know, you kind of stayed from, from the conversation we had initially had, if I recall correctly, you, you kind of had, you know, you stayed in the corporate world for a while and then decided to take a, a turn into the culinary world. Is that right? That is correct. So yeah, I'm living my second stage of life, I guess. Um, yeah, so I did a corporate, I, you know, once I moved to Kansas city, I got recruited by a very large, um, healthcare, uh, company here. So for a while, I, gosh, I probably travel over 32 countries where we were assessing their technologies, um, their government's, um, initiatives. Uh, you know, I worked with all kinds of different, uh, people and it was just a fantastic experience, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was still corporate. And it was, you know, very hard work. And um, I remember being pregnant with my second child and coming back from Norway, like so tired. You know, oh, like I, I would wake up in, yeah. a, in a country not even knowing what country it was. And um, yeah, so it was it was just really exhausting. And, and so it's like, it's like something has to change, you know. And so that's kind of how I just started cooking. And then I would visit my family in Mexico. And of course, you know, like they're very, you know, Mexican, like, oh, mijita, how are you? And why you, you're not eating enough or, you know, whatever it was. <laughs> and right. um, they would, you know, we would fill up our suitcases with tortillas. And I had uh, my aunt gave me a recipe cookbook. And so like literally that would become my detox when I would come back from a long corporate day. And so, yeah, it, it was it was really more of like, what can I do that I am not on my phone and I'm not hearing the pings of the emails, you know? So it's like, and if, you know, if, if when you're cooking, if you're not paying attention, you're going to burn something. So, yep. so it worked really well for me. Well, you know, I, a lot of people find solace in the kitchen, you know, particularly, you know, in high stress jobs like you're describing that it gives people a sense of, of grounding of, you know, a break of normalcy uh, from this, you know, the kind of crazy, you know, daily grind and travel and all the rest of the things that, that, you know, you've talked about. I'm curious to know, you know, you were talking about how your aunt gave you, uh, you know, a, a recipe book. Did you grow up you know, with your family making the tortillas the way that, uh, you know, you make them now? No. And that's something really funny. I tell everybody, it's like, no, I didn't grow up making the tortillas. You have tortillerias everywhere in Mexico. So it's like, you know, every other corner, boom, there's a tortilleria. 
And, uh, you know, and they all have a different spin on it, meaning especially with flour and Sonora, you know, so is is it thicker, thinner, what kind of fat they're using, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I would just, you know, walk to the tortilleria, grab, get my tortillas for that day. Uh, same for the nixtamilization. Nixtamilization is a lot of hard work. And so, yeah, you don't do it. You buy the fresh masa, bring it home, and then you might make your tortillas. Can, so, can you talk about that, the nixtamilization? That's something that is a term that folks might not be familiar with. So so maybe you can give a little bit of a description of what that is. Yes, with corn tortillas, uh, what you do is you get uh, dent corn, so whole dent corn, and um, you combine it with water and uh, alkaline solution. Typically it's lime, or it could be wood ash, and you bring it to a certain temperature and then once that temperature is reached, you turn that heat off and then you let it soak. And what will happen is it's going to have a chemical reaction where the outer layer of the corn is going to get almost like a jelly. And, mm-hmm. and as you're rinsing it in the next day, it starts dissolving. And that's the best thing because obviously that's a part of the corn that, of dent corn that is not very digestible for humans. And mm-hmm. also what the lime reaction does with the corn is um, also the corn absorbs a lot of minerals. And so it makes the corn very healthy for you. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so the process overall of nixtamilization is this reaction. So the next day you come in, you rinse that corn, and then you have volcanic uh, stones where you grind um, the corn into the masa and make it into tortillas. It sounds like a pretty labor-intensive process. Now, is that is that what you do for the tortillas you make now? You had to start from someplace because if you, you know, you were not if you didn't do this growing up, you almost it sounds like were learning while you were kind of messing around in the kitchen later in life. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and that's exactly the process we do. And you know, it has really started as like, hey, how can I get a better tortilla here? And we first got a little tiny. Um, grinder, one of those little crank ones, and that we could never get the texture right. Also, it's like, as you can imagine, the labor of doing that to get that masa soft, it was just oh, yeah. crazy. And so then we would have like a different setup. You would do one pass and like the cuisine art, another one in the blender, <laughs> and then another one in the final grinder. And, uh, you know, and then you end up with gummy masa. And so it's like, yeah, so it it is a lot of labor intensive, um, you know, type of initiative. And then, um, so yeah, that's how we started looking for um, actual real mills. And so that's really what spurred out the business. We were like, okay, well, let's get a real mill. What does that look like? And um, how much does it cost? And could we do this as a side gig? Mm-hmm. What made you think, you know what, like, I want to do this as a side gig, because it's one thing to do it for yourself, to do it for your family, to say, you know, I want a taste of home. Uh, it's a whole other thing to say, you know what, I want to try to turn this into a business, even if it is, you know, a side hustle. Yeah, you know, it's, it was, well, for one, the expense of getting one of these things. Um, you know, we were cashing out from our own money to buy this expensive machine. Yep. <laughs> so might as well make something out of it. Um, really, that's what it came down to. You know, it's like, okay, well, if we're going to spend this much money, might as well do something on the side with it. And we seem to enjoy it. So why not? Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So, so where did you start to sell? Uh, yeah, uh, when you started to kind of scale this operation, uh, where who were your customers? So we were very focused on chefs. So, you know, uh, when you're selling tortillas or bread, as you can imagine, it's a very low um, number that you, you have. So you have to sell a lot of them in order to make anything off of it. Mm-hmm. And so we started with restaurants and we were very lucky. We have several she- chefs that embraced us. And um, yeah, I think that the first six months we only sold directly to to restaurants, and then eventually we ended up in the farmers market. Mm-hmm. While you were still working, right, full time. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that. I mean, it was crazy. It it was absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't rec. I don't know. You know, I, I get a lot of questions from up and coming entrepreneurs. Should I quit my job or not? And I, I always say that's a personal question and it really depends on where your finances are and how comfortable you are. In our case, uh, Mark was the one who ended up quitting his corporate job. And so he was running the operations while I was, you know, working on my corporate job. And then after work, I would go ahead and hop and help him and, you know, stop dropping samples to different restaurants and whatever it was needed to be done. Um, yeah. You know, I had the health insurance, so I I couldn't quite quit yet. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. I mean, these are, you know, real questions that people have to ask themselves if, you know, side hustles sound great, but people like think more about sort of the glamour almost of, oh, we're going to have this, you know, cottage business and, you know, we're going to go to farmer's markets. We're going to meet all these healthy people and, you know, share this, you know, artisan, small batch, fill in the blank. And you forget about the fact that you got to get up at four in the morning and, you know, you try and try and fail and you got to go and actually hustle and find, you know, customers and all those things, which, you know, is it has to you really have to have that commitment. Uh, You know, I'm curious to know, you know, as you were going through this process and and trying to, uh, you know, chase that taste um, that, you know, you found authentic for your tortillas, uh, how did you source ingredients uh, in, you know, in the Midwest or did you get some imported or both? You know, um, we are, we've, we started first with Midwest. Um, I'm a strong believer of supporting your local economies. And so we were, we were very lucky. We went to several farms right out here in Kansas city, literally 20 miles where, where we're currently located. The biggest challenge was uh, a lot of people were growing, um, beautiful corn, but it was not being cleaned and properly managed for Mm. human consumption. Most of that corn ends up going to feed. Um, So, you know, so then we're trying to figure out, well, can we get a farmer that does like certain specific types of corn and does row cropping? And at the beginning, we couldn't get anyone right outside of Kansas City. So we ended up meeting a company right in Illinois. And they all, they manage all organic and non-GMO heirloom corn varieties. And so I was like, I was pretty happy. They're close enough. And then as we got going, then we got approached by different farmers in the Kansas and Missouri community that said, you know, I think what you're doing is super cool. If I row X amount of corn, would you take it? And oh, wow. Like, and I was, and I always say like, well, yes, with the caveat that I hope it's good, <laughs> you know, but I said, as long as you clean the corn properly 
and we can do all the tracking. Obviously, we're in some larger grocery stores, uh, and I need the proper tracking in case of an outbreak or anything. Right. Uh, so need, you're in Whole Foods, right? Yeah. So we need we need all the proper tracking, right? So it's like as long as you do all that, and I have everything tested, and we are non-GMO certified, all these different things. As long as I have all the certifications in place, yes, of course I'll do it. And so currently we source from some farmers in Kansas, some in Missouri, and some in Illinois. Uh, we do import from time to time, and I have a very difficult you know, existential question when you do that. Um, there's many mm-hmm. reasons why. The first one is environmental impact, you know, shipping mm-hmm. all the way from Mexico. Uh, by the time you get it here, it might not be in its prime. Two, um, what impact is, is it having on the community? So you hear over and over a lot of stories about farmers in Mexico that this was their, you know, substance uh, crop. So now they're left because they want to sell it to Americans or anyone else in the world for a higher price. And then they end up with nothing for to feed mm. families or they end up right. with the less than good corn. And so I kind of have a little bit of mixed, you know, feelings over that. You know, it's like so I, I do source. There's one person that I source from that I trust that he is getting the, you know, the right pricing and, you know, there's a there's fair trade there. Um, but I try to treat it at what it is, which is exceptional luxury to get get it. And as such, I make sure that it's treated as a special batch. Oh, that that's that's wonderful. Yeah, it makes total sense. I mean, it, it's yeah. wonderful to hear how committed you are to mission at every level of of what you're doing with uh, with your business. And and one thing that I recall again from from you know when we had initially spoke is um how you are trying to also educate consumers about uh, the diverse uh culinary culture of Mexico. Uh, tell me a little bit about you know how you're trying to help people uh, better understand you know the the regional cuisines of of Mexico with what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. So this comes really from, you know, from my childhood. Uh, as far as I can remember, I remember I was four years old all the way until I was 12 and my brothers got too old and they didn't want to travel anymore. My parents used to like put us in a little Nissan Datsun and we travel from the state of Sonora, which is up in the north side, all the way to the south. So literally 30 days of travel all throughout Mexico every year, every summer. And that really, you know, I, I always tell the story as a child, it really scarred me, you know, from being in a car with no air conditioning and sweating with two older brothers fighting. Uh, <laughs> it's like a blast. Yeah, it was. Yeah. At the time I was like, God, I hate these trips, you know. Uh, but now that I reflect back to it, I really cherish them because I didn't realize how much I was personally learning about how rich and diverse Mexico was from a cuisine and overall culture, you know, different indigenous peoples and different traditions, um, how different areas, you know, how uh, the Spaniard influence happened, things like that, that most of the time you really don't think when you're eating a taco. And so mm-hmm. when I, when I, when I started Yoli, one of the things that, you know, I wanted to share is 
how diverse Mexico is, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you know, we get a taco in vogue, you know, when there's birria or whatever is in style and, and that's all we think about. When in reality, you know, we have a vast uh, cuisine that should be shared. And so I share how everything is different on every single region with my own products. So I will go ahead and so say, if you come to our shop or you get any of our salsas, they will have a little bit of background of like where this salsa or originates and how to probably pair it. So it's, it's kind of like kind of giving you a little bit of hint to, without being too prescriptive, but I do mm-hmm. want you to know and understand that, Hey, we're not a, you know, all the same. Right. Um, the other thing is we do write scenes. I was just going to ask about that. I'm so glad you brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So we do scenes. And the reason I did scenes is obviously self-published and, you know, there might be some, a couple curse words here and there on the zines. Um, and basically, I focus on a single ingredient or a region. And so right now, we're in our second one, which it was all dedicated about masa. And it talks about, you know, hey, the political and socioeconomic implications of how masa came about and, you know, how it got mass produced and all the different waves and, and such. And uh, now I'm working on my third one, which is all about the coffee culture. A lot of people don't realize that there's a big coffee culture in Mexico. That's incredible. Now, do you do you write these yourselves? Or so yeah, it's it's a labor of love, but it's really about it's meant to like share a little bit about a single ingredient. You know, so as it, it, through our conversation here, we've gone from messing around in the kitchen to you know selling in farmers markets to restaurants to Whole Foods. And then you mentioned, oh, I have a shop. But at what point did you did you establish a, a brick and mortar, you know, storefront? Yeah, it was supposed to. So we we started Yoli in 2017. The brick and mortar was to open in 2019, and uh, unfortunately, we had a lot of issues with permits. It's it's kind of hard in KC mode to get a permit sometimes. And so, anyways, long story short, um, you know, we're getting ready to get everything rolling in 2020. And we know, all know what happened in 2020, <laughs> right? But it was literally, we, we were already paying rent and we're like, we are opening this thing. And so, yeah, we opened in the middle of the pandemic in the summer of 2020. And uh, it's a small, it was at the time it was a small little tortilla where we're doing all the flour tortillas from there. And then we used it as our R&D space. So we had all mm-hmm. of the different products that Yoli makes. And, uh, you know, we would have fun with it and experiment and see what people would think. And based on, you know, the success or the failure of it, the product stays or, or is gone. And so it became really pivotal for us. One, we could be directly interacting with our consumers, which we were used to in the farmer's market. But now sure. it just gave us a better stage to represent our product in, in a light that we wanted it. Mm-hmm. Now, I so you know you you just started the tortilla in 2017, so six years ago, and you know people and you just received a James Beard Foundation Award, uh, in, in the bakery category, correct? Correct. So, in a matter of six years of establishing, you have already received one of the most prestigious awards in the culinary world. Uh, tell me how that unfolded and how that made you feel. 
You know, it's, you know, well, obviously we're incredibly honored uh, and humbled by it. Uh, we were certainly not expecting, and in, as you have heard from the rest of the episode, I do not come from the food world. So I first didn't even know what a James Beard was. <laughs> you know, we were out there like, hey, can we like pay my mortgage? <laughs> can I quit my corporate job to do this full-time work on a right. approach? Uh, so yeah, you know, the first time we got nominated, it was uh, Mark and myself as actual bakers. And then the following year where we won, which is this year, is when they introduced um, more of a standing bakery category. So they kind of separated. Now they have like a pastry chef category mm -hmm. and then a bakery category, which is great because, you know, if you make tortillas or if you're making, you know, any sort of buns or any other things other than just, you know, pastries, um, you're, you're a bakery, right? So I think right, that, right. that is really great. And also it has a broader scope of like, what's your impact in the community, et cetera, et cetera. So the way that it worked, at least in our case, is that, you know, somebody randomly nominated us in their open call. And as we got vetted, then eventually we became semifinalists. And of course it goes up to votes in the nationwide, nationwide. And then, you know, we went and we won. Um, we couldn't have been more shocked, honestly. But uh, How'd you find out? How'd you get that call or email or however you found out? So like, when we were semifinalists, I was actually at home. It was a snow day in Kansas City. I'm with my kids. I, you know, I wake up every day at four in the morning and, uh, you know, I'm doing all my emails and everything. And then I'm feeding my kids breakfast. And one of my friends uh, who was in France at the time uh, sends me like a crazy text that congratulations. <laughs> it's like, oh, she's You're like, for what? For what? She must be confused. <laughs> or, or what time is it in France? Is she drinking already? You know, that's really what I thought. <laughs> and uh, no, and then I, you know, Google and start yelling and that was about it. Then we just went on with our lives. It wasn't, you know, it was because it, it was so out of the blue for us for being nominated a second year in a row that we were really not expecting it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when we get to be a finalist, again, we thought we had already hit the end of the road and it was cool and we had moved on, you know. And again, someone else called me and gives me this frantic message that we were watching live the stream where they're announcing. And uh, and I call Mark because I'm driving. And I said, like, can you validate? <laughs> can you Google this? Because I'm driving and I can't see it. And uh, yeah, it got validated. And it's like, yeah, it, it's just, you know, it's surreal. And, uh, you know, we were incredibly excited, but then we keep our feet on the ground and it's like, okay, mm -hmm. that's cool. Got to move on. Got to work to do. You know, it's like that's yeah. our attitude because it's like, yeah, it's cool, but it's, you know, like we, we thought we had no chance. So. Well, but you, you obviously did. You were nominated once you were in your, then you came back and, and won, you know, in, uh, in 2023, and when people usually, you know, get a James Beard uh, Foundation award, it becomes almost like a marketing calling card in in some way. Do you find that this award has impacted your business in in any 
meaningful way where more people are, you know, trying to buy your product, more stores are trying to carry it, more restaurants are trying to, you know, use it in their, in their dishes. Uh, has it had that kind of, you know, um, monetary impact along with that prestige? Oh, of course. It's, it has a huge financial impact. The first month, I mean, our sales were up, you know, to the roof. In fact, that after we won, we're still in Chicago and, uh, you know, eight in the morning, our shop doesn't open until 10. There was a line around the block, you know, it was just wow. crazy. And, uh, overnight, you know, you, you become recognizable to people, not only in the United States, but across the world, uh, well, made diff our, our, you know, being when our, when a little bit different was that it was the impact as a tortilleria. It was the first time mm -hmm. a tortilleria had won, period. And, uh, you know, Mexicans around the world really rallied about it. And it was just, honestly, it was, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It was just incredibly humbling. And you really understood that it wasn't just you winning, but it was our culture you know, being an immigrant in the United States and then how mm -hmm. it how it affects the rest of the world because the rest of the world is watching what's happening in the culinary scene in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so it really just becomes a validation for tortillerias across the world that, you know, change is coming. And I mean change because for most part, everywhere receives a very manufacturer- uh, tortilla full of preservatives and all that. Yep. And so now there's, there's validation that there is a market for, you know, a good tortilla. Absolutely. Uh, and, and what does this mean for your future now? You know, we, we're still working towards the same plan that we were doing before the award, you know, and it's, um, we are really focused on how do we showcase the diversity of Mexican cuisine and what are those products that go along the way. And some of them, you know, I say products in quotation because it might be experiences. And so again, for us, it's all about, Hey, showcasing how different things could be. And so mm -hmm. expansion of our product line is coming. We want to reach more grocery stores nationwide. Um, and then we are, our shop in the West Side, we have actually converted it into a restaurant, which is opening late fall of this year. Wow. So it's a tiny little, you know, 10-seater, um, which, you know, it's, we're incredibly proud. It's going to feel like you're going one of those fondas in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we're opening two other concepts rolling out in the next two years. But all of this was planned before winning. Just the winning just makes it a little bit more pressure, more pressure on us to make sure that we execute it flawlessly, at least as good as possible. Well, I have full faith in you uh, and your operation <laughs> to rise to the occasion. Uh, what an incredible journey, all done with purpose and care. Marissa Gencarelli from Kansas City, Yoli Totiaria, James Beard, Foundation Award winner 2023 in the bakery category. Marissa, thank you again for joining the program. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Don't go away. We have to pause for a break, but we'll be back with more from my conversation with Chef Damar Brown. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. 
There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is Eat Your Heartland Out, and I'm your host, Capri Cafaro, and we are celebrating award winners of the very prestigious James Beard Foundation Awards. Uh, there are a number that hail from the Midwest, including our next guest, and that is Chef Damar Brown. He is the chef de cuisine at Virtu in Chicago. Chef, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You have quite a storied career. Um, and, but it all has to start someplace. What got you interested in pursuing a, a life in the kitchen? Um, I think it was my family, actually. So I was raised by three women, my mother, um, my aunt, my grandmother. They were all phenomenal cooks. And I was the only child in the home. So I think as a means to keep me out of trouble, they would force me to cook with them. So I started you know, peeling potatoes and snapping beans at a very young age. Um, and it just so happens that I didn't mind it so much. And once they noticed that I was interested, they really leaned into it. Yeah. How so? Um, you know, at that time, I think Food Network was becoming a thing. Um, I really enjoy watching Emerald Live. He had this program where he, you know, be cooking one minute and be playing the drums next minute. Um, he didn't get to the point that my mother, when Chopped kind of first came out, she would buy ingredients and challenge me to cook things with them and you know, I'd make something awful and she would give me very kind criticism. Um, <laughs> yeah. So from there I started like doing church dinners and things like that, but I was, you know, physically cooking for people by the time I was 14, you know, um, groups of people. So, yeah. Amazing. So this is all, this has been a, a lifelong passion for you and, and uh, led you into getting formal training, right? Yes. Uh, so right at the high school, of course, at that point I knew I wanted to be a chef. So I, applied to the Cooking Hospitality Institute of Chicago, uh, which later became Little Cordon Bleu. And I, I started there at 18 and, um, yeah, did the two-year program. After that, I started working at MK Restaurant, um, which was just so happens a couple blocks away from the school. And I, you know, worked there for seven years. I literally grew up in that restaurant. Yeah. How'd you choose that particular uh, restaurant to, to try to work at? You know, honestly, I wanted to work for a chef that looked like me. And at that point in time, I didn't have many options. Um, so uh, Marcus Samuelson had a restaurant called Sea House um, at that point in time. So I tried to get a stage there. Um, for whatever reason, I you know couldn't get in. A friend suggested that I you know knock on the back door at MK. So I did. And I said all the things that underqualified cook would say. I said I work for free. I'd wash dishes. Um, I just wanted to, you know, be in the space and they, they let me work for free. Um, I started working in the mornings and I, I started like that. Yeah. As an intern. 
Amazing. Amazing. Now, so you, how long ago was this? Um, this was probably at the end of 2010. Um, mm-hmm. So almost 14 years ago, maybe. Yeah. So, so as you know, you, you had just mentioned that, you know, at the time, so we're talking about over a decade ago at this point, um, there weren't a lot of chefs that looked like you, not a lot of folks, um, you know, that, that, you know, from the BIPOC community, um, has that changed then? I mean, have you seen, you know, more people of color, um, you know, owning restaurants, running restaurants, being, you know, the, the, the chef that runs the show? Uh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's still a small percentage comparatively, but when you think about it, there are more, um, you know, people of color being recognized. And I guess what I should say that these people were always here is just that, you know, they're getting the attention that they probably have deserved mm. for years now. Right. Um, so now you can look in the country and cook any kind of food that you want to cook. You can go from a Shama or a JJ or Kwame or, you know, in, um, in Chicago, we have Brian Jupiter, we have Darnell Reed, um, Cliff Rome. We have so many uh, chefs of color doing so many wildly different things. Um, and they've been doing these things for years, but now um, their names are being called out um, in different mm-hmm. rooms and different media aspects, which is great to see. And and you are part of that, too. Uh, yeah, I'm honored to um, you know stand next to these individuals. Yes. Well, it's it's uh, it's well deserved. Now, you've you know, went now you are at Virtue. How long have you been in your current position or at this current at the current location? Uh, it'll be five years in November. Mm-hmm. Yes. What what made you make that move? Uh, you know, at the time I was working at uh, Royster under Andrew Brochu um, as his sous chef, and I I really feel like I grew a lot in that position. I really enjoy working at the restaurant, um, and I met a lot of beautiful individuals. Um, but at a certain point, um, I figured out that Brochu was going to leave soon, and it just so happened that Chef Williams was going to open up Virtue. And I knew I wanted to be a part of it. So it was kind of like coming home. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell me a little bit about the restaurant and um, and how you design your menus. Um, so Virtue is in the Hyde Park neighborhood, South, Hive, South Side of Chicago. It is a very diverse neighborhood um, because of the university, but it's still a predominantly black neighborhood. Um, the food that we are cooking is food that I saw growing up right in my home um so we're cooking southern american food we're celebrating black food ways black art black music Mm -hmm. when you come into virtue um you know all the art in the walls is by black artists um who play some of the most beautiful music i actually play the music myself so i'm very proud of that um but you know when we're looking at designing the menu we're really looking at what's in season so we look at the farmers around us and what they have available um, we apply that through the lens of the past, pretty much. Um, so what do we see growing up? Um, what are techniques that are maybe not as used commonly or forgotten about? And, and we go from there. Give me some examples. Um, so things like, let's see, we are, I'm changing the menu very soon because obviously Chicago is telling us that fall is coming aggressively. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so... My grandmother cooked a lot of rutabagas um, when I was growing up. Uh, rutabaga, I think it's delicious, but it's just not a thing that I see on menus very often. Um, Nichols Farms, they grow really amazing rutabagas that they will have very soon. 
um, I chose to marinate them in kind of a jerk spice situation. We're going to smoke them um, and they will be served with sunflower seed pesto, uh, creamy farro and crispy sunchokes. And, you know, in my mind, this is just a rutabaga dish and um, sunflower seeds and you have all these parts of the sunflowers, the sunchoke and the sunflower pesto, all those things are related um, to a sunflower seed. So I think that we take that approach to looking at ingredients that maybe aren't celebrated widely, um, that are considered humble. And then how do we mm-hmm. use those ingredients nose to tail like we would a protein, right? So we're going to use the mm-hmm. vegetable um, in all of its entirety. Um, so that's the way I like to think about cooking in general. That's that's interesting. I mean, you don't really hear a lot of discussion. You just described it as nose to tail, but you know, use utilizing all of a plant. You don't really hear people talk about that. And and you know, as we try to get closer to, you know, uh, zero waste or trying to mitigate food waste in particular, I'm surprised that I, I certainly have not heard a lot of people talk about. You know, let's let's make sure that we're utilizing all of the vegetables. So that's interesting. Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, I was um just talking to Nick Nichols from Nick Farms. And I think I asked him pimento peppers like a year ago. And he just emailed me. He was like, hey, you still want pimento peppers? I'm like, yeah, sure. How much you got? <laughs> uh, he says he has 100 pounds of them. Now we're going to make, you know, gallons and gallons of pimento pepper hot sauce. Um, but it's literally just a discussion of, okay, we're going to do this thing um, and see what we should be using with the farmer. Um, so that's really how we like to cook. That's that's a, a, a great approach. Now you've um, it's my understanding that you didn't just grow up watching the Food Network. You also yes. appeared on the Food Network, right? Um, well, it was Bravo because it was Top Chef. Um, ah, but similar situation. It's it's something that I didn't ever see myself doing, um, but it was such an amazing experience. Yes. How that ended end up happening. Um, you know, honestly, so they reached out through Instagram, so I didn't think it was real at first. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. But, but I, you know, reached back out, heard what they had to say. I didn't really want to do it at first, um, but after talking to Chef Williams and some other people in the restaurant, they convinced me that was a good opportunity. Um, and then we just kind of went from there. How? What was that experience like? Had to be nerve wracking. I would, I would be, I would be nervous. I, I'm a competitive person, but I never saw myself as, you know, like there are some serious chefs on Top Chef. I've actually been a fan of the show for years. Um, and I would kind of look at those things and just be like, I couldn't do that. Right. <laughs> like they're asking you to cook for a hundred people in an hour. How do you do that? Um, but, you know, I think that I learned so much about myself in the experience, I met so many wonderful people. And I thought what was also really great is I got to get really informed feedback, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think cooking in a restaurant as a chef, you have a lot of people who criticize, right? You have a lot of people who say they don't like a thing, but they can't tell you why they don't like it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Or they can't tell you that technically this isn't right. So to get feedback from someone like Chef Tom Colicchio, who can say, okay, this piece of pork that you braised is dry. Um, did you pull it out of the liquid when it was hot or when it was cold, right? And he's asking these questions based off of the fact that he knows that if you pull a hot piece of meat out of a braising liquid, that is going to dry out, right? That you have to cool it in the liquid. And he has informed feedback. So I think that um, that experience was just 
really informative. It was really exciting because it forced you to cook in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it was so good for my confidence and growth. And it, and more all, it was just a, a ton of fun. Like it didn't feel like fun in the moment, but thinking back, <laughs> it, it was so much fun. I, I can definitely see that. I can I can relate to what you're saying. And it sounds like, it, you know, when I, I'm hearing you talk about this Top Chef experience and this informed feedback and, and you know, the, the approach that, you know, you now bring utilizing that feedback, it sounds a little bit like your experience growing up and, and having your mom and your family, you know, give you feedback to some of the things that you were doing in your sort of junior chopped uh, in the house. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would say my mom wasn't as tough of a critic, but uh, yeah, it, it definitely resembled that. Um, I was so glad that I got the opportunity to do it and it was an amazing experience. That I can, I can only imagine. I mean, um, you've had some unbelievable experiences uh, and, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're talking about James Beard Award winners and, and you are one of them. How did you find out you were nominated? Um. Well, honestly, you know, I woke up one morning um, and my publicist, Laura, texted me, congratulations. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I, you know, saw on Instagram that, you know, the semifinalist list came out um, and I read my name and I was like, wow. Um, And it was just an amazing experience even to be a semifinalist on that list. You know, it's like 18 people on that list. And then they narrow it down to five. Um, and once again, I think in the morning, my publicist, Laura, texted me, congratulations. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, but it, it was a huge honor just to be named amongst those people. Yeah, no question about it. Um, so what kind of impact has that had on you professionally? You know, being part of a group that is, you know, so revered, you know, and it is an elite group. How has that uh, you know, impacted, you know, your business, people coming into Virtue, um, you know, even just maybe, you know, are you thinking differently about the menus that you create now because you have this this moniker that says I'm a James Beard Award, you know, winner. And now um, I, I have a different responsibility. You know, um to be clear, I was raised in a fashion where we try not to let our highs get too high or our lows get too low. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was nominated, it was an honor. Uh, when I was sitting there, I was in my mind prepared to win and be graceful about that and to not win and to cheer as loud as I could for whoever was named they called. Um, so after the fact, we celebrated. It was a great time. Um, and then we got back to work. Yep. We There's a responsibility that came before James Beard. And I think the responsibility is is the same. I think there, there are a group of people who look at those things and say, oh, well, this person has this accolade. Um, let's go to the restaurant because of that. And, you know, businesses need that. We can use all the help we can get. Um, that's just the way of the business. But um, as far as my mindset as I said, we celebrated and then it was back to work. I think I was washing dishes like two days after, right? Um, yeah. It, it's, it's just the job. And I think if you get too hung up on those things, then you lose sight of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And also those those events and those accolades are too few and far between for that to be the the moniker or the motivator or why you choose to do what you do daily. So, Amen. 
I, I that is a that is a great way to see things. And and I, you know, frankly, I wish more people would have that that view um, that that you know you're articulating here. Um, you know, but but speaking of responsibility and, and back uh, a little bit to you know something that we covered earlier in our conversation about people of color in the kitchen and um, you know you have have worked with others uh, you know uh, chefs of color and 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 um, owners and that sort of thing now you know you're in a position um, where you know you can mentor. Um, people coming up through the system, um, just as you were, you know, knocking on doors, working for free back in 2010. What are, what are you doing or what are you trying to do to, you know, help support the next generation of, um, of chefs that look like you? Um, well, I think I was very fortunate to um, have strong mentorship early on um, through Chef Williams. And the things that he's done with me and taught me i you know we learn things so we can give them out um and i think that i'm probably doing it on a smaller scale right now but right he assisted me and talked me through purchasing my first home um now i have conversations yeah like he he did that for me so i get to talk to people about budgets and how to save money and and how to set up you know um, stocks and things like that um, on a small level, right? Um, so everything that he's given to me, I immediately try to give it to others that are around me. And I think even broader than that, um, the important piece of the whole visibility and notoriety is the fact that you get to be an example um, for someone else. Maybe someone who doesn't think they can do something gets to see you know themselves in you. Because I know seeing Chef Williams those years ago made things that I dreamed about more tangible and made me believe that I could do it. Um, so I think the more visibility on, you know, positive role models um, that look completely different or are doing completely different things, um, the better, right? Because it gives um, more space to others who, you know, could be the next emerging chef or whatever that thing is. Um, so I try to start with my team who was around me um, and sharing whatever knowledge that I have and, and, giving them space. And then I think about the fact that, you know, the responsibility is that you are being watched and you want to take that seriously, right? Um, Because if people are following in your footsteps or they see you as an example, you don't want to lead them um, down the wrong path. Absolutely. Well, you know, know, I think that sometimes the um, things get boiled down in a way where, you know, it's like representation matters is a hashtag, but it's real. You know, it's not, it's not just, oh, hashtag representation matters. I mean, you are articulating exactly why representation does matter, you know, because, you know, when people do see um, role models that they can relate to, it makes those dreams more tangible as you just expressed, Um, you know, so uh, obviously you're part of that landscape now too. Um, and, you know, working on new things every day, I understand that there's, you know, you got a couple other things going on, um, with macaroni and cheese. Am I, am I correct <laughs> on this? Because I, I gotta say, I, I will travel for macaroni and cheese. Uh, yeah, you know, I, so my aunt Inga, who she made the mac and cheese in my family growing up, um, you know, for the special occasions and, it was something I really enjoyed. So once I became a professional cook, I started working on a recipe that made sense um, 
in a professional kitchen that I felt like tasted like home, but could be replicated, um, you know, for a lot of people over and over again. And when we opened Virtue, uh, that mac and cheese that I've been working on went on the menu. People responded really, really well to it. Um, you know, as we do all the time, Chef and I were kind of hanging out at the service one night. Um, we had a couple of drinks and we were talking about mac and cheese for some reason um, and the things we could do with it. And he does this a lot, actually. So, you know, two weeks go by. I feel all about the conversation. And he's like, hey, what if we do this? We open this space, um, you know, revolving around mac and cheese. And I'm like, okay, when do you want to do that? And he's like, next week. Um, oh, great. <laughs> so we already had the space in Mustard Seed. Uh, we knew we had two kitchens there. So we wanted to activate um, the other side of the building. And we turned that into Top This, where... We use that same mac and cheese recipe and we put different toppings on it. And it's been a lot of fun so far. And the community has been responding really well. So it's been good. And it's it's just takeout, right? Yes, it is delivery and takeout only. What what are your toppings? Do you change them? Um, so far, we have around 12 of them. Uh, but we have the classic, obviously. Uh, we have a teriyaki pork belly, um, buffalo fried shrimp, buffalo fried chicken. There's a blackened chicken. Um, there's a vegetable one. There's there's all kinds of things on there. Yeah. Well, I'm hungry now. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks. Uh, where do you? I mean, it, it seems like you know you are always ready to take on a new challenge, whether it's uh, you know turning a mac and cheese operation on a dime, uh, you know, or uh, getting creative in, in how you're designing you know new menu items. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? You know, I hope it to open um, something small um, where I can continue my growth in food and continue my cooking. Um, you know, at Virtue, we're, we're cooking for tons of people every night, which has been a beautiful experience. Um, but I'm hoping to do something a little, I wouldn't say on a smaller scale, but um, a little more intimate. Um, but yeah, I want to continue cooking um, food from my past. I do a ton of research. Um, on Black Foodways and African Diaspora. And I buy all these old cookbooks and just try to kind of cook through those recipes and see how I can make those relevant um, to today's foodways. So that's really what I see myself continuing to do. That's fantastic. We need we need more of that kind of creativity. And, um, you know, I I am always interested in, you know, learning about different foodways of different, different cultures because it tells a very unique story. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that drew, you know, drove me towards, um, you know, using food as a way to capture culture and, and, and cultural storytelling. And it sounds like you're doing a similar type of thing, telling Absolutely. stories through your menu, um, and doing that research. Um, that it's, it's all exciting stuff. Congratulations for all of your successes and, you know, keeping your feet firmly planted on the ground and, um, you know, all the best to you, Chef Damar. Thank you for joining Eat Your Heartland Out. We look forward to seeing everything you continue to, to do. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. 
food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.